Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm Brian Dalek, one of the producers of the show, and I'll be your host today. This week, it's all about you. For a while now, we've been asking listeners to submit their training queries, and we got so many great submissions. So once again, we've dedicated the entire show to answering them. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so let's jump right in. This is our fourth training roundtable on the Runner's World Show, and it's my first time leading one of these panel discussions. I'm happy to be down here because I know I'm probably going to learn some stuff from everything that I've ignored from the magazine over the years, and you guys are going to help me out as well with these questions. So I want to bring in our panel. We will first start with our senior editor, training editor, Megan Keita. Megan, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. I love answering questions. <laughs> and also judging people as from our running quiz. Yes, I won't be doing that today. No, not today. And then we also have our training director, Bud Coates, a 213 marathoner, four-time Olympic marathon trials qualifier. Glad Great. to be here. Great. And uh, we also have our shoes and gear expert, Jeff Dengate. He also logs a lot of miles, has done a lot of races, so he will add a lot of insight to this as well, beyond just gear and shoes. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Okay, we will start off with a question that came from Twitter. Um, this is from Steven. He's writing for his wife, actually. He says, began running again last year after 20 years off from running um, and seems not to be getting any stronger. Any advice for someone who's had that long break and is getting back into training? Uh, what I would recommend, um, number one, or, or ask right away is, um, is your wife on a training plan? Has, has she kind of determined at what level she's at fitness-wise? And is the training plan uh, equal to the fitness level she's at right now and is progressing on a regular basis? If she's kind of running randomly or picked up a plan that doesn't necessarily match her, her entry fitness, she could be struggling a bit, and that's why she might not be getting any stronger. She may actually be getting weaker. Yeah, I should add that the question also said she is getting ready for a 5K. So there is a little bit of a goal there, but we just don't know whether they're Right, we know the what plan. the goal is, but we, we don't know what the process to try to get there is. So that would be my number one recommendation is to make sure she's on a proper training plan. And one thing I would add to what Bud said is, um, in addition to a proper training plan, strength training might be helpful. Um, as we've written in Runner's World a bunch of times, you start to lose muscle mass starting at the age of 30. It declines every year after that. So basic body weight moves like squats, lunges, planks, things like that could really be helpful for feeling stronger and actually being stronger. Um, and in addition to that, doing some kind of hill training, even walking up hills, does a lot to build those big muscle groups in your legs. So that's something that could also help her feel stronger. And to follow up on Bud's, if she's biting off more than she can chew, um, from a, a gear standpoint, I get a lot of people telling me this X shoe got me hurt. And the first thing I always ask that person is, show me your training log. And they never do because it's typically an injury is uh, an error in your training. You bite off more than you can chew. You, you jump right into a training plan. You start running too hard, too fast, 
and you go in the opposite direction. You get slower, you get stale, you get hurt. Um, so that's one thing, especially for somebody who's coming back to uh, running after 20 years. If you're this age, you're not going to run the times you used to be able to run when you were 20 years younger. Um, so you need to really start off like a beginner and not get in over your head. Um, let's move on. This one has to do with early morning struggles. This one is from Kristen. She writes to us, I run early, often at 4.15. Uh, she says she notices her paces are significantly slower at that time of the morning than when she runs later in the morning or in the evening. She asks, should I be pushing to run faster even if the effort feels harder? Or should I run by effort and ignore the pace? Also, why do you think this is the case? Is my body still asleep? Am I not warmed up enough? Thanks in advance for any help. I should say, I actually did an experiment where I ran every day, like very early for two weeks. So I kind of felt a lot of these same things and learned from it. But I'll, I'll let you guys take the floor first. I actually looked this up because I thought we had written something about this in the past. And lo and behold, we had. Um, Apparently, there's been research that shows that your muscle and lung performance peaks in the mid to late afternoon hours. Um, one of the reasons that morning is so difficult is because your body temperature is lower as you're sleeping, which means your muscles might be a little stiffer in the morning. And you're also coming off, you know, about eight to 10 hours of fasting. So even if you eat a little something before you get going, you aren't going to have the energy stores that you would have later in the day. So that's a little bit about why, but what do you think about, you know, whether she should run by effort or try to push the pace at that time? Yeah, I absolutely do not suggest pushing the pace. Um, what I do suggest is increasing the length of your warm-up to a, a longer degree than you would normally do. So start with a, just a comfortable walk um, and let the heart rate slowly increase, let your arteries slowly dilate and let the muscle temperature slowly increase, um, not different than what Megan said. Um, you, you're kind of influencing some changes a little earlier than normal. Then when you go from that comfortable walk for a minute or two, then increase to a brisk walk, and then slowly progress into a comfortable run, and probably within about 7 to 10 minutes, you'll realize that you're running at your normal pace, but you've eased into it. You haven't forced yourself into it. When you force yourself into it, you kind of have to play catch-up right away. Um, if you force the pace, what happens is you're doing work that your body can't keep up with. So right away, you start to basically become anaerobic or hit the wall really early. And uh, extending that warm-up is really key. Yeah, I found when I had to try to do a track workout before 7 a.m. to a specific speed, if I didn't warm up for two, two and a half miles, there was no way I was going to hit any paces I was trying to do. Yeah, and, and I'd add, too, um, most of us are probably just going to be getting in kind of a comfort run um, right. in the morning. But if you're trying to get in a quality run, a great idea in between that, that slower warm-up and then running either tempo or intervals is to, is to do maybe six to eight strides, um, increase the pace for 20 seconds, relax for 40 seconds, and then uh, every minute just repeat that for six to, to eight times. And what that does is, again, um, it increases your heart rate, it increases your muscle contractions, it increases the amount of blood flow to the muscles, and you better prepare yourself to running faster for, a, for an extended period of time. Great. So let's move on to another question. This one is from Shannon. 
She writes, I started a new job and now I have to run in the morning, another morning runner. She says she spends the rest of the day in front of a computer. She says, I find I get really stiff during the day from sitting. I try getting up and moving around. She uses a standing desk as well. Nothing seems to help. She says, I feel like the Tin Man needing oil when I stand up. I should add that I am a master's athlete as well. So um, creakiness after those morning runs the rest of the day. I think we've all experienced that. It's really funny because that literally just happened to me an hour ago. I went for the lunch run today, and it was just a short four-mile jog around town. And then I sat down, ate lunch, was at my desk for about an hour, and I got up, and I went limping through the office to go to the printer. And one of our colleagues asked me, what happened to you? (laughs) My answer, I got old. (laughs) I just turned to master's athlete. And so, yeah, I stiffen up. And for me personally, I don't I don't sweat that. Like, okay, I get stiff and I take a few minutes and by the time I get back from the printer, everything's kind of loosened up and nothing hurts. It's if I have persistent pain and I stay, um, you know, stiff and tight and sore for very long, then I start worrying. But I know that I'm going to be stiff. I, I just kind of get up real gingerly and, and go slow. I don't, I don't go dashing off after anything. The opposite of the information that we just gave for Kristen, uh, for Shannon, I would extend my cool down a little bit. Um, you're, you're running in the morning and then, you know, I'm guilty of this as well. I've often rather wanted to run one more mile than, um, get home a little early, spend the time stretching and then jump in the shower and, and get off to work. I, I, you know, add a mile and then I jump in the shower and I take off for work. And if you, if you kind of bridge the gap, uh, slow down over the last five or six minutes to a, a nice, easy, comfortable run, even walk toward the last couple blocks, and then stretch statically, slow holding motions to the key muscles, the quads, the hamstrings, the calves. And, and what that does is it kind of counteracts what, what running does to you. Running is going to fatigue those muscles, and the reaction of, of the fatigue is going to have those muscles want to kind of tighten up or, or, or stiffen up. If you stretch them right at that time, You'll maintain your range of motion and you'll maintain your circulation. And um, then once you get in the shower and get out, um, you probably won't notice the stiffness quite as much. But Jeff's point is, is exactly right. If you just expect to be a little tender and a little stiff, just, you know, um, when you're getting up from your desk, you know, slide your chair around and get up with both legs rather than one legs and twist at the same time. Same thing when you're getting out of your car. Don't step out with the left leg and then grab your bag and, and pull yourself up. Spin around, you know, put both feet flat on the floor, stand up, and again, within four or five steps, you're probably fine. All right, so now let's move into um, a half marathon training question on building strength for those runs. This one comes from Paul. He says, I recently ran my first half marathon in June in two hours and six minutes. Congratulations, Paul. He says, I'm getting ready for my second half this fall and would like to be under two hours. I hear a lot of runners talking about hills, tempo runs, intervals, speed workouts, etc. My question is, should I incorporate any of these types of training into my plan to help my next race? Everyone's nodding their head a little bit, so I think we know the answer, but let's explain it for Paul why the benefits are there. Megan, you are nodding your head the most vigorously for this one. Yeah, uh, I mean, Paul should definitely start to work in some faster and more challenging running into his training plan. Um, 
What I would recommend is starting with some hill work. It doesn't necessarily need to be repeats and it doesn't necessarily need to be fast, but just the act of running up challenging hills regularly will do a lot to build strength and speed without necessarily taxing your body too much. There's not as much impact when you're climbing like that. Um, The other thing I would do would be to add strides to the end of one or two easy runs per week. So, you know, you accelerate for about 20 seconds, then you recover for about 40 seconds. You repeat that, you know, six to eight times at the end of an easy run. That gets your legs accustomed to turning over a little bit faster and to, you know, the kind of stress you'll be experiencing if you do choose to add speed work. So that's where I would start if I were Paul, Um, and then I might work up to doing some short intervals or doing some short tempo effort runs. Those would be comfortably hard pace. Um, Maybe do two miles at tempo pace between a mile of warm-up and a mile of cool-down to start. Um, That kind of run is really helpful to prepare you for the challenges of a half marathon specifically. Well, one of the things I like to do, um, I'm not a big fan of following a training plan for me personally. I just, I, I struggle with that. I, it's really, I'm, I'm bad at that. But I like to have fun when I run, and I really like to run hills. And I think that can, you know, substitute the lack of me actually training. So when I go out, even on an easy run, if I hit a, a hilly route, I try to hold the same pace even going up the hills. So I'm working the hills a little bit harder and then recovering down the back side of the hills. And so I would pick out hilly routes and run those. And so you're getting in your, some of your work there uh, a little bit more so, um, you know, it, especially if you're not following a training plan. What um, we also need to remember is not only running up the hill, but running down the hill is very important. And, you know, the downhill running, if done correctly, if done under control, um, can really stress the quads and the lower back, the, the glute muscles, in a way that makes you stronger and more efficient uh, on the level ground. The only other thing I'd like to add, and, and it's kind of the opposite of where Jeff's coming from, but we have to understand, too, that, you know, Megan, myself, um, Jeff, we, we've been around running for a long time. We understand easy days, hard days. We kind of innately know what to do. But if you don't, um, it's really a good idea to get involved in, in a training plan. And, and one of the things I'd recommend doing is checking the Runner's World training plans out and figuring out, you know, which one fits you. There are time-based plans, there are intermediate, uh, beginner, and advanced plans. And what they will do is mix the efforts up, easy days, moderate days, hard days, long days, so that you're recovering in between those more intense workouts. And you can go to runnersworld.com slash training plans to find all of those from 5K up to marathon, beginner plans, like you said. And this one is from Dave. It's a little bit more specific. He says, I like to run half marathons, both road and trail. I like to feel stronger when the courses have hills. He's 64, doing about 35 miles per week, including a long run. He does speed work and body weight strength training, so all good stuff there. But he asks, should I replace the speed work with short hill repeats, or do I make some of my easy runs into hilly runs by doing long, easy-paced hill repeats? Is there any big difference? And we'll start with Megan. Well, I just want to tell Dave that he's in luck because the issue that is on newsstands right now, the August issue, has a training plan specifically for hilly half marathons. So I would encourage Dave to pick that up and check it out. Um, It's a great training plan that incorporates a lot of hill work. 
Um, it incorporates hill repeats during the week, some of which are done at effort and some of which are done at pace. So as Jeff said before, if you maintain your pace going up a hill, that is a kind of speed training and a kind of strength training. Um, and it incorporates some long runs that include hills. So I think both of those things are important to do some hill work during the week and then to gradually progress to doing hills during your long runs. But I'll let Bud elaborate on that. Well, first of all, Dave, I'd like to say you're my hero. Um, I'm 60 right now, and you're 64, and you're doing 35 miles a week, and I'm slowly returning. So you're my goal. I want to get to 35 <laughs> miles a week. I'd love that. Um, the the, um, the one thing that, that shot out to me right away was when you asked if you should replace your easy runs with long, easy-paced hill runs. Uh, no. Um, those long, easy-paced hill runs are actually a little bit of quality, so that should replace your quality run for the week. Keep your easy runs easy um, by all means, and those longer runs that include some hills um, – you'll need to, to uh, follow those with uh, a day off or easy day as well. But you'll progress well. And, um, you know, the, the only thing that I'll add on that is I like to refer to hills uh, that of runnable level and of unrunnable level. So keep those hills um, at an incline that you, you can run up at a consistent pace. Doesn't, ha- doesn't matter if it's slow, just consistent pace, rather than a really steep hill that you're – you're, you're almost walking. Another half question. Um, we've talked about training plans. So this goes in the opposite of kind of following a full plan. It's from Terry. She asks, I would like to know if it's possible for a 55-year-old to train for a half marathon running only three times a week. She does cross train and practices yoga. But she says, I'm an intermediate runner, and this will be my second half. I've gotten this question from friends a lot who don't think they can do five days a week. Um, what's the consensus? She does do these cross-training things in between. Yeah, I'll say right away, yes, you can. And uh, we have a great book, Run Less, Run Faster, um, that really uh, puts this all together. The key is is that you your running days are, are key days. Um, you're getting in either a long run or a, a comfort quality day, meaning, you know, some... some um, even-paced intervals or some rolling hills or some tempo workouts. And then on the other days, you're complementing those activities, whether it's actual strength training as cross-training or whether you're replacing running with a non-impact exercise such as cycling or uh, using an elliptico or an elliptical machine inside. Um, But the key is, you know, or the answer to the question is absolutely yes. And I'd like to add that the same guys who wrote Run Less, Run Faster have a new book out called Train Smart, Run Forever. It has a very similar plan in it that has three running days per week, and it supplements those running days with cross-training as well as strength training and flexibility work. That's out now, and we have an excerpt coming out in the September issue, which hits newsstands in mid-August. So that would definitely be an appropriate plan for Terry to follow Um, to train for a half marathon. I've actually been meaning to follow one of their three runs a week plan. I just need to actually start it. You know, that's the ticket. That's the thing. You actually have to start with the strength training every once in a while. Yeah, strength training's hard. Yeah. Okay, now we'll move on to a marathon training question. This one comes from Brian. It was a longer one. We'll try to summarize it as best as we can. 
Um, he writes, I'm four weeks into training for my first full marathon. He's finished three halves, each one faster than the last one, and his best is a 214, and he did it on a sprained ankle in high humidity. So he picked a plan with a 425 um, finishing goal. He says, I recently completed my first Yasso 800s workout, classic workout, running the 800s in four minutes and 25 seconds. But he says, this felt really easy. So I ran the final seven 800s between 3.30 and 4.10. Does this mean I should run my 800s faster and perhaps even target a faster pace group than the 4.25 he's aiming for in the marathon? We'll, we'll start with Megan on this one. Uh, as for whether you should target a faster pace group in the marathon, I would say a resounding no. Um, Yasso 800s are somewhat predictive for some people, but if you're more of a speed-oriented runner than a endurance-oriented runner, um, you could theoretically run the 800s a lot faster than you would be able to finish the marathon. And since this is your first marathon, you do not want to go out at a super aggressive pace and have a bad experience. Um, and that is likely what will happen if you try to go out at 3.30 pace when your fastest half marathon was a 2.14. Um, I'll let Bud speak to whether you should run your 800s faster. Just to clarify what Yasso 800s are, it's a series of 10 800-meter runs with a quarter-mile recovery run in between. And if you're able to do those 800s in a time that relates to your marathon, um, then it, it points toward being able to run that marathon time. What that boils down to is if your goal is to run a 4-hour and 30-minute marathon, your half-mile repeats or your 800s should be in 4 minutes and 30 seconds. If your goal time is 5 hours for the marathon, your goal time for the 800s is 5 minutes. And it does relate pretty well to having both the speed and the strength to run at that level. But too many times um, we... We kind of work too hard in those 800s to either maintain that pace or run faster. And we get the false security that we're ready for a marathon that's faster than, than we actually are. What I'd recommend doing is going back to that half marathon that you ran. That's going to tell you more than anything. And if you, if you double that half marathon time, 214 plus 214, you're in the 428 range, which means with a goal of 425, you're planning on running twice as far, but also running faster. That's probably not going to happen. I'd say um, at the fastest, choose the 435 to 440 goal. Now, I know you said you had a sprained ankle and things weren't quite perfect, but if you start out with that 435 to 440 pace group and then halfway to 15 miles through, you realize, wow, um, I'm feeling really good. Then you can kind of take off and have a great time passing a lot of people in the last 10 to 12 miles. If, on the other hand, you start out a little too quick, those people are going to be passing you. And it's a lot more fun to pass people than it is to get passed. And, Jeff, we were saying before we started recording that uh, there, there's a, a better way to get a prediction out there. 
There is, yeah. And one of the things that I like to do um, is to do a tune-up race. You know, four, six weeks out from your marathon, a little bit before even, jump into a race. and, and Like a 5K, 10K. Even maybe a, a 10-mile or a half marathon, you've got enough time to recover, but you get an indicator of what kind of shape you're really in. How well is that training plan translating for you? And then you can take that result, go over to runnersworld.com, and we have a race time predictor tool on our website. You punch in that time. Uh, that you ran for that distance and what your goal distance is, and it's going to give you a realistic expectation. And that is actually, there's a complicated formula behind it that um, does it. And it's not exact, but it's it's pretty close. It's going to give you an idea of whether or not um, you're in the right ballpark. And then as Bud says, you know, even though it's, you, you think you might be a little bit faster, it, it's your first marathon. You don't know what's going to happen and what's coming your way. And it is a whole lot better to realize that you have a lot more in the tank toward the end and be able to pick it up. And you can find that tool at runnersworld.com slash predictor. All right. Thank you very much for the plug there, Megan. Um, another marathon question on starting too fast. This one comes from Jenna. She writes, I would like some advice on how to make sure I run a negative split at my next marathon. My race day endorphins always get the best of me, and I start off way too fast. At my last race, I was more than a minute fast in the first mile. Jeff. It takes a lot of discipline to hold back in those yeah. early miles. You're, you've done all the work. You ran when you were tired. Then you tapered. And now you're fresh. And you're going at marathon pace, which is easy for one mile or two miles or 10 miles. But when you're 20 miles down the road, that marathon pace can get brutal, and especially if you went too fast. So the, the key really is discipline early on. And you have to constantly be thinking about how fast you're going and holding back. So I like to break the race down into three different chunks. The first 10 miles, the second 10 miles, and then the last 10K. So the first 10 miles, I like to shoot for a few seconds per mile, actually slower than my goal, maybe five, six seconds slower than my goal pace for those 10 miles. So when you get to 10 miles, you're about a minute slow of your goal. But if I've done that right, I have not banked any time. I've not done anything stupid. I'm still feeling fresh. And then that middle 10 miles there from 10 to 20, I lock into goal effort. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely hitting it and it trying to be as much like a metronome as possible, nailing it through there. So I'm still a minute down when I get to the 20 mile mark, but I've done this a number of times. You hit 20 miles feeling fresh as a daisy, and everybody else is dying at this point. And there's no better feeling in the world than blowing people's doors off after 20 miles. You go by, the spectators are just like, man, that guy's cruising. And you feel like you're on top of the world and you're bulletproof. And I've made up that time every single time. So the last 10K is just race time. That's when you really start doing the work. But you've got to hold back early. So that's a good plan. We'll go to Megan next. Do you, do you break up your race any way differently, or what advice do you have for holding back a little bit? You know, I'm guilty of going out too fast way too many times, but I still know I still know what I should or could be doing to not do that. So one of the things that's worked for me in the few races where I haven't totally blown it in the first 10 miles, um, there's the mantra that I like to use. It's not even really a mantra. It's just a phrase. I like to repeat, save it, save it in my head. 
you know, save it, meaning save your energy. You're going to need it later. And if Jenna is one of the many runners who likes to listen to music during a race, I would recommend starting her playlist with some more calm songs. There's definitely a big effect that pump up music has on, you know, that feeling of race day adrenaline and that feeling that you feel like a million dollars and you want to feel like a million dollars later in the race. In the beginning, you want to feel calm and collected and under control. So if you are the kind of runner who makes a race day playlist, you know, kick it off with something a little bit more chill and save those really exciting songs for that last 10K. All right. So I think a lot of good stuff there for Jenna. Okay. One more question on the marathon. It has to do with altitude training in a sense. It's from Michael. He writes, I'm running a fall marathon in hopes of breaking the elusive three-hour mark. The race is in Utah, starting at 8,700 feet with a major net downhill and finishing at 4,900 feet. Since I live in Kentucky, how can I train for both the altitude and the intense downhill running? Megan. You, you said you have some things for this question specifically. Yeah. So I looked this up because I was curious. And there are some articles on our website, one by Alex Hutchinson, who is our science columnist. And he dug into a study that found heat training may help you prepare for running at altitude. Um, so a lot of the training you'll be doing in the summer in Kentucky is going to prepare your body in a similar way that training at altitude would. That said, um, I, I don't know how well adjusted this particular person is when he visits altitude. So most experts say that you should spend three to five days at the elevation you'll be racing at before the race to adjust and to kind of overcome any symptoms of altitude sickness you may encounter. So if there's any way you can get to the race site uh, in advance, that could be beneficial. Uh, Bud, what do you think about the downhill element? Well, f well first of all, I'll, I'll add that um, heat and humidity on my end is far worse than, than moderate altitude. Um, and especially if that moderate altitude is going to be decreasing over the distance. So uh, as long as you set out at a pace that's relative to your marathon, maybe even a little bit slower, as, as Jeff has already uh, discussed, you're probably going to be just fine. Um, as far as the downhills that, that uh, you're going to be experiencing, try to get um, some rolling hills into your runs, if possible, um, at home. If you can't do that, some some squats and some lunges are are very good for that purpose. We have a, a program called Iron Strength on on RunnersWorld.com that can also assist in creating some great quad and glute strength that will resist your fatigue over the time during that marathon. But the key is is really um, making sure that you you don't take advantage of that downhill early, take advantage of it later in the race. We have another marathon question. This one comes from Richard in Cleveland. He writes, I have run three marathons, all in different weather conditions. I have improved my time, but in each race, I run out of gas at mile 18 and 19 and drag to the finish. He says, I'm a salty sweater, and I'm sure I'm dehydrating during the race, even though he takes water and Powerade at almost every water stop. 
He writes, what can I do to avoid crashing in my marathon? Megan, what do you think? Just reading this question, if he's only taking water and Powerade during the race, he might want to consider trying uh, some more calorie-dense fueling products, uh, trying them in training, obviously, seeing what his stomach likes. Um, I believe the recommendation is to take in 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, if that's something your stomach can tolerate. And training with uh, gels or chews is the only way to learn how to tolerate that kind of fuel mid-run. So I would suggest he try a few different products uh, to supplement the fluids he's taking in, and he might have better luck with those. Bud? I'd like to add, even though we, we like to blame a lot of things on nutrition during the marathon, it's usually more related to your early pace. If you're running too quickly over the first half, uh, your body temperature is increasing uh, more than it should, which means you're perspiring more than it should, which means you're losing elect electrolytes faster than you should. So number one, you've really got to pay attention to pace. In a situation like this, and I've talked to a number of, of people who have marathon experience, um, and I've given this one piece of advice. Whatever that average time is for your last three marathons, and I'm going to say... Um, you were hoping to run 3.30, and you ended up running four hours. Uh, that average time is four, uh, is four hours. Divide that by two. You get two hours. Plan on doing your first half marathon in two hours, and then picking the pace up if you feel comfortable to do so, which you probably should, because when you ran those four-hour marathons, you were spending a lot of time over the last six miles running considerably slower to get to that four-hour mark. So running two hours, you're saving energy during that entire time. You're perspiring less. You're burning fewer calories. You're, you're dehydrating, obviously. Uh, you know, if you're perspiring less, you're dehydrating less. So you're more able to perform over the second half. Um, it's, it's you know, obviously important to have nutrition during the marathon, but I am totally in the ballpark of saying pace is everything. I am a big fan of keeping meticulous training logs. Over the years, I have mine going back for a long time. So Richard, I'm going to suggest uh, maybe a little bit different approach is looking back at your training log and seeing what you've been doing in training. Um, I see three marathons that have all been hitting the wall. Um, you know, perhaps as you look, you may see that you're not logging enough miles in training. Um, that, that could be a real thing. And when you get out there on race day, there's all these combination of factors. The marathon is such a, a complex thing to do. It's fueling, it's pacing, it's everything. But if you're not getting in enough work in training over the weeks, maybe you've you had an injury you tried running through or you uh, tried a, a, an abbreviated training plan or life is busy and you just can't get in that many miles, um, you may be coming in underprepared and um, not ready to chase that goal that you have. So you have to really be able to assess what's been happening and look at what you're doing now to make that realistic prediction for what you're going to do in that next marathon. Okay, let's change the pace of the conversation a little bit and move a little bit more to shoes and gear. So Jeff will be coming at you for these initially. The first question is from Debbie in Florida. She writes, does it really matter what type of shoe is purchased? Couldn't an insole change the fit of a shoe? Can insoles help lengthen the time before a shoe really wears out? How do we choose an insole? 
and every rain store seems to sell a different brand of insole, what really works? So a lot of questions in there about insoles, but um, take it from where you want to start. Yeah, there are a lot of different insoles, a lot of different brands, and a lot of different purposes. Uh, in some cases, that insole is really just extra cushioning. It will take up some of the volume inside a shoe, so it's definitely going to change the fit. Um, you know, I would say the shoe that you choose is very important still. That is our one piece of protective equipment that we use. It's what sits between us and the road. Uh, that insole is only going to impact it a little bit. The shoe is still going to wear out uh, in pretty much about its normal time. A lot of that happens because of your body size and scuffing your shoes on the road and a lot of factors. So an insole is not necessarily going to help lengthen that shoe. I think it's just going to change your experience in that. Maybe you want that extra cushioning. Maybe the insole that came in the shoe was one of those flimsy white foam ones that doesn't really offer much and you want more. So an off-the-shelf one can do that. Another thing is that maybe you want just a little bit more support. Maybe you want to feel that arch pressed up against your foot's arch and feel that extra little bit of support. Um, you can do that with an insole. The, the real key is getting into your local running store, seeing what they have there on the shelves and trying them on, pulling them out of the box, putting them in the shoe and seeing how that insole works with your foot and the shoe to get the right formula for you. I'd like to add to that too, that be careful trying to, to mask how old and used the shoe is. Um, nothing's going to change the fact that the sole is, is a bit worn or the midsole has compressed. And what, what will change with a new insert is your immediate sensation. So you may feel better, but you're still running on the same old bad tire. Um, so uh, be careful uh, changing the insole and thinking that that extends the life of the shoe. All right. The next question is probably one of my favorites that we have um, for this round table, it's from Elizabeth in San Francisco, and she writes, It is really difficult to find vegan-friendly running sneakers. Brands don't often make the information publicly available, and typically even the most seasoned store staff won't know which brands or models fit her needs. What's even more difficult, she says, is finding good-looking vegan running shoes. I typically work off the same one to two brands and don't love the aesthetics. Can you, Jeff, recommend some solid and attractive vegan running shoes? And I, I didn't know where to start when I first saw this question. You got very excited when you discovered an answer to this. Yeah. A, a bunch of years ago, Brooks announced their Green Silence shoe. And it was this eco-friendly shoe. And, you know, you could throw it in the landfill and it would degrade so much faster than a typical shoe would. But they also made that the pitch that all of their shoes were vegan-friendly. And some companies use leather. We don't really see leather on running shoes uh, too much, performance running shoes especially, but um, some glues have animal products in them, and some companies still use those. So Brooks wasn't using any of those. They still don't. So all of their shoes are vegan. Um, as far as what's good looking, my my opinion of good looking may be different than yours, Elizabeth. Um, I, I wear running shoes to work every day. It's kind of a perk of the job. Um, but all of Brooks are uh, vegan. Another company like Asics, they actually do tell you which ones are vegan, and that's in their product code. So when you look at the, the crazy little letters and numbers that identify a, a shoe, if it has an N in the Asics shoe, that means it's vegan. If it has L, they're using leather. So we're not really going to see leather, like I said, but um, at least they make that available, and you, you can see it there. Uh, another company that's new that you might like, they, they kind of have some fun stuff going on, is the company On uh, from Switzerland. They are all vegan as well for their shoes. So there's some options out there. Um, another general training question, this one concerning cadence. 
This is from Kyle, and he wrote to us on our Facebook page at Runner's World Audio. He writes, my cadence is low, 145 to 148. Everything I hear or read says that I should be around 170 steps per minute. I'm a little confused about proper cadence because I've also seen articles about opening one stride. Does height play a factor on where my cadence should be? He says he's 6'1". Maybe because my numbers are low, that's why I'm a heel striker, he wonders. Um, Do you have any advice for a stubborn 36-year-old Scandinavian from northern Minnesota who is hopefully not stuck in his ways? So an easy way to get an uptick to cadence. Bud? Sure. Um... There's been a, I know there's been a lot of information and perhaps uh, as much information um, as we've had, there's been as much confusion about, you know, the perfect cadence. Uh, Dr. Jack McDonald, um, you know, sat in the stands and counted runners, elite runners, while they were running in the Olympic trials and in the Olympics and came up with the conclusion that we should all be right around 180 strides per minute. Um, and then that, uh, quickly evolved to, well, maybe between 170 and 180. And the, the fact of the matter is we're all different. Um, and to a certain degree, the slower we run, the slower our cadence is going to be. So, you know, around 148 to 150 isn't terrible. Um, and as you become more fit and a little bit quicker naturally, that cadence will probably increase. If you're noticing that you overstride or when you do land on your heel, your, your knee is straight, um, you may want to pay a little bit of attention to your stride length and, and make sure you're landing with a, with a slight bend in your knee. But other than that, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Definitely don't try to increase the length of your stride. Uh, that will cause the problem that I just talked about, mostly landing on your heel and landing with, a, with probably a straight knee. So you'll, you'll create as much issue um, on the bad side there is if the cadence is perhaps a little bit slow. But for the most part, it's mostly related to pace. The quicker you run as you become more fit, um, most likely the, uh, the quicker your cadence is going to be. Okay, we have one final question. It has to do with strength training. Megan, you said strength training was hard, so we're going to hit this one. It's from Elizabeth. She writes to us to our email how can you best incorporate strength training in with marathon training? So straightforward, we're all guilty of not doing this. A lot of us in here, we try as best we can, but it, it's sometimes hard to do. Well, what's your advice to kick us off here? You know, I've heard from different coaches about this, and they, they disagree sometimes on like when you should be doing your strength training, when you're marathon training. Um, my general feeling, uh, my preferred way is to, to do my strength training the same day as a hard or long workout. I usually do it, you know, once, at least once a week, twice is better. And um, I, I like to do it on the same day as a hard workout because then when I'm taking an easy day or a recovery day, I can really take it easy and recover. Um, and, and this is when I was just doing PT exercises, so really basic body weight strength training. Uh, that might be different if you're trying to do more intense strength training, but I don't think that marathon training is a good time to be doing really intense strength training. You should be doing you know, just enough to kind of stave off injury, to keep you strong, and, and to keep you healthy while you're training for that marathon. 
Bud, what do you think? Well, most of the research is going to tell us that uh, strength training on the same day as our quality run, um, most of us don't have enough time during the day to do that. Um, Our quality runs tend to be our longest running days. And when we try to add strength training to that, um, we're we're spending a long time training. Uh, What I found is that you as Megan said, you really want to have your recovery or easy days easy. So if you decide to do your strength training on those moderate days, um, you, you can, you know, take advantage of a little extra time because those moderate days aren't going to be, uh, you're not going to be out there running as long. Um, but you also want to be careful that the strength plan or strength routine that you're doing doesn't um, extend fatigue into the next day and affect your quality run. So number one, whatever strength routine you do, you want to make sure it complements your running. It doesn't get in the way of your running. And then um, fit it in the best way you can. The, whether it's on a moderate day or whether you're able to do it uh, on that quality day, two days a week is really minimum. Uh, if you're only doing it one day a week, you're probably going to lose the effect of that strength day by the time you do it again the following week. So two days a, a week is, is really key. I would stay away from my long run day. So if you're doing intervals on a Wednesday and maybe strides or easy hill workout on a Friday and you can you know, squeeze in a, a strength workout uh, um, after those runs, that's fine. Or if you're, you're doing moderate days on Tuesday and Thursday, you can do your, your strength training then. I have a follow-up question for you, bud. Sure. Um, so as a person who struggles to strength train at all because I find it really boring and not enjoyable, <laughs> is one day a week still better than zero days a week? Probably not. Um, so you're it, saying I can just not bother. Well, I'm not saying you cannot bother um, <laughs> because, because if you have a, a problem area, um, not doing anything about it isn't going to help and only paying attention to it one day a week isn't going to help either. You really have to revisit that at least twice a week. Rats. <laughs> okay, that'll do it for our fourth training roundtable. Once again, I'd like to thank Megan Keita. Thank you, Brian. Coach Bud. You bet. Jeff Dengate. Good to be here. And, of course, all of our listeners for all of your great questions. We hope we helped you out just a little bit as you prepare for those fall half marathons and marathons or whatever you're training for this year. And that's it for this week's episode. Once again, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who has rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all of your feedback. I produced today's show with Sylvia Ryerson and Christine Fennessy. Thanks again to everyone who submitted questions for today's roundtable. We're really sorry that we weren't able to get to every one of them. But still, good luck with your training, whatever your goal. Stay safe and healthy. And we'll see you next week.